This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, here I am about to burble. I want to tell you that I just saw that great lawyer, Michael Cohen. You remember him? He was right next to our former president of the United States, Donald Trump. He then got sentenced for a little bit of perjury and fraud Little things, you know, we don't get too nervous about stuff like that. It's around us all the time. And instead of being anywhere, he is spending his regularly constant, steady time in the Regency Hotel Bar and Grill. Now, in case you're from out of town, the Regency Hotel is in the 60s and Park Avenue. It's very high class. It spends, he spends the time now bitching about losing his license. He uses the saloon area. The hotel is near where he lives, and he burbles and he grouses about what happened to him. He's using the bar and grill, much like it was his office. Regulars say he sits there in his jeans, and he's practically kissing the waiters. For about 20 minutes, he was a hotshot, He is now a low shot. I myself saw him walking on the streets. I I saw him also in a restaurant. Things are not as good as they had been. Ah, the new world. With Biden's possible influence peddling, our country's tis of not him. Not really. What dudes Jefferson and Washington thought we should do. It's like a not nice habit about doing what we should do. Conspiracy is if two or more plan an illegal act and take steps to bring that to fruition. Lying could jeopardize one's freedom. We're back to Michael Cohen. But this is all around us. Everyone we know is up to go to the can. Furtherance means criminal conspiracy. Meantime, walking around, there's a crackhead hunter. His dime bag is in the Capitol. President banker Biden, the shredded FBI, plus Kamala, who thinks she's heading the Red Cross because she doesn't know what the hell she's doing. All of that unlawful-like works is around us. What sort of a country do we have now? Fear is that the progressives are taking over or have already done so. They're calling ours a weak banana republic. They're saying our country now, the greatest universe in the world, smells like American Marxism. A downward spiral is helping them. And TV anchors with their dyed black hair are repeating the same stuff. What it is like, it's like rearranging furniture on the Titanic. 
Back a few centuries ago, we had a military hero named Benedict Arnold. He was then commander at West Point. He rightly possessed a map of its fortifications. He sold that to a spy. He got branded a traitor. People got hung. That was for selling one document which never was acted on. How about we put some of those ways into what we've got in Washington now? Okay. At a recent arraignment in Atlanta, everybody is always in some recent arraignment, a guy was in an Uncle Sam costume, walking around in that Uncle Sam familiar costume. And he said, Quote, the Constitution is my birth certificate. Socialism is my death certificate. Okay, so onlookers, clueless, were staring, and they asked, who is this wacko guy with the striped pants and the top hat? They were told he was Uncle Sam, and they actually asked, whose uncle that was? Next July 30th marks the year of the real Uncle Sam's death. His name was Samuel Wilson. That is the real beginning of Uncle Sam. He was born in 1766. That is how Uncle Sam began. We continue the story. Go to Troy, upstate New York. It has a large Uncle Sam statue. Why? Because Samuel Wilson, a meat packer there, provided beef to the War of 1812 military. His barrels of beef were stamped U.S. The stamp U.S. were the initials of Uncle Sam. Also made there were men's collars and buggy whips. It was called Collar City. Left now in Troy is only the Uncle Sam legacy. May their Uncle Sam last longer than those collars or buggy whips. And may all of us know who Uncle Sam was. Listen, we're speaking of things that are gone now. So much is gone. Also gone now is what used to be the Friars. You heard of the Friars. It was part of the national show business. Fried is more like what the Friars is now. Now comes a thing, believe it or not, called the Re-Friars Club. Whatever the hell that is. I don't know what it is. But they put out a page somewhere, and on the page was the following wordage. Quote, A loosely knit gang of Friars Club expatriots are reuniting to share all things fun and fraternal. This goes on to say, it's details we have of lunches, cocktail mixers, and other club-centric events, and they will all be listed here on our future pages. This is to be held at various venues throughout the city, open to all former Friars Club members, their families, their friends, and anyone who ever dreamed of being a friar.
Yeah, right. Okay by me. And if you can get Milton Berle, Frank Sinatra, Henny Youngman, George Burns, Abbott and Costello, Gracie Allen, Desi Arnaz, George Gershwin, Judy Garland, Sophie Tucker, Jimmy Durante, Jerry Lewis and Sammy Davis back for their regular lunch. Lots of luck. Okay, but you still with me? We have the United States of America, the greatest politicians. One councilman came up with a great solution to relieve New York's traffic problems. What did he say? Encourage car theft. Okay, now we're going on to other stuff. The survival's upper echelon includes the category caregiver. This is a serious subject, and I feel like bringing it up. The country is aging. People are living longer. As a result, and we also have pandemics, people are getting ill. There are nursing homes that are overflowing. I have just received a piece of information that Dr. Ruth Westheimer, we all know the sex therapist, Dr. Ruth, she fell. She hurt herself. She injured herself badly. She was taken from the hospital. She is now in the a home for the aged. What I am saying is we need for survival the category caregiver. I have experienced some bad experiences with caregivers. They're savvy creatures. They start small, but like the lowly caterpillar that grows and spreads its wings, they osmose into a form that flits spreads its wings, and takes over. Dr. Ruth, as I said, just had a minor stroke. The hospital ran tests. Affected was her left side of the brain, which controls the right side, like the arm's movement. Medics were confident that with therapy treatment, which is now starting, she will regain most strength. She has not her hearing aids, so do not call. She is awake. She is alert. She does not know how to text. She is right now in the Hebrew home for the aged. If you text her, a caregiver will read it to her. A caregiver's first rung is lower level. Driver, butler, valet, housekeeper, maid, nurse, assistant, we speak big time. Employers often have big wallets. Billionaire heiress Doris Duke, Duke University, Duke Tobacco, passed away at 80. She had homes everywhere, Hawaii, Newport, Beverly Hills, New York. Her companion was a butler who trickled into confidant, keeper of the flame, the phone, the friends, the caregiver. Name Bernard Lafferty, Irish, 51, out of rehab and broke financially. To prevent break-ins, 
She put locks on every window. She was careful. She had chains that rumbled over each window at night, the same way jewelers protect their frontage. Bob Balaban produced HBO's 2006 film, Doris and Bernard. It starred Susan Sarandon and Ralph Fiennes. Its party, where was it? It was in my home. Why? Because I own her apartment. After her death, I bought it. That the late Bernard did her in was not proven. That her estate left him millions was proven. Caregivers come in all shapes and services. Babysitters, nannies, drivers, cooks, Alzheimer companions, housekeepers, second cousins. Celebrities have had those lawsuits. When a haul my trash to the dumpster gopher rises to chief of staff employee, they've already heard, seen, know everything. They know how often you hit the john. They take over your life. One such worked for a VIP. The VIP handed a sofa blanket to a visitor who had not requested it. I know because I was there. Not having first been consulted, the caregiver told the recipient of this sofa blanket, you don't need this, and peeled it right off the visitor's arm at the door and took it back. I saw it. Another time, a helper was given a thank you sweater. The caregiver later removed it with, you can't have this, it's too expensive. It wasn't expensive, it was cheap. So what is it? Jealousy? Need to show importance? One housekeeper almost kept the whole house, wore shorts in summer, sat in the dining room with guests, involved herself in family decisions. Even during private chats, some stay plunked front and center. Their answer could be, oh, we're just trying to help whatever might be needed. No, the real answer was, no one may hear, know, see, or smell what's behind closed doors but them. I lived through a forever friend who handed me a gold Bulgari wristwatch, an old one. The chief of staff interjected to me, you have no right to that. She never checked that with me. It wasn't even on my list. Caregivers are not always family, and our population is growing older, needier. Long years ago, when my housekeeper, my household was in need, things disappeared. Many things disappeared, like cash. I'm just letting you know. Okay, onward. Floods, fires, earthquakes, tragedies. Know that honesty is the best policy.
except when dealing with your insurance company. I am now about to go to a station break. But before I do that, one little word. Can we please stop stories on how hard B.S. Biden works? I remember back a long time ago, I had the next table. Our napkins nearly touched at then-Senator Alphonse D'Amato's 2004 wedding. He's now divorced. He was then marrying a lady named Katuria. He has now divorced the lady named Katuria. But at that wedding, I saw Biden preen, pose, drink, do photos, smile, more photos, drink more, pat backs, preen, more photos. That's providing the person was VIP. He reveled in his own importance. The last time this guy worked for real was in rehearsing his son. I'm about to leave. I just want to tell you a new thing is being perfected in Washington. Thieves are now training to be topless muggers. This way, you won't remember their faces. I'm going off to a station break, and then I'll be right back. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Good afternoon, ladies and germs. My name is Madam Adams, Cindy Adams of the New York Post. You can read me and you'd better in the New York Post, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And every Sunday from 1 to 2, I'm on WABC Radio AM, and you can listen to me. And right now, you are about to have me interview someone I think is great. He's been called the funniest lawyer in New Jersey. Well, to me, New Jersey is funny as it is. But let's go on. His name is John Bramnick. He's called the funniest lawyer in New Jersey after winning contests at Rascal's Comedy Club, whatever the hell that is. He even volunteers as a comedic auctioneer. Okay, let's start before we go into more because I have a lot more to talk to you about. Have you ever used humor in the courtroom to your advantage? I've used it, but not normally to my advantage. And the reason is when you have six or 12 jurors, you have to be very careful. They like your jokes. And I've made a couple of mistakes. And that's one place I don't use it because of the possible negative outcome from the jury. I use it everywhere else. I use it in the Senate. I use it at home. My wife doesn't think I'm that funny. And I use it day to day. What could be like a lousy joke in a courtroom? I don't understand. Well, they, jurors, jurors are very serious. And if you, and you want to win over all the jurors, and if you say something that thinks like a comedy club, right? You yeah. can't be a wise guy in a courtroom. The judge doesn't like it. Uh, it, is a, it is generally a very serious place. And maybe, you know, under limited circumstances, you could say something funny, but it's just not the appropriate forum. And when I've tried it, uh, it's not gone well. Did you ever fall down on your behind when you tried to defuse a tense situation in the courtroom and it did not work? Uh, specifically, the answer is yes. 
Uh, I do remember a case with a jury. We were allowed to talk to the juries, uh, jurors when we were in New York, and there was one time where the jury really banged my client badly, and when we spoke to the jury, they kind of thought I was a wise guy, and they didn't think <laughs> I was that funny. So that was my last time. About 25 years ago, I used comedy in the courtroom. But down in Trenton, I use a lot of comedy. Well, how do you balance being, I mean, these sort of questions are almost dumb. I should know the answer, but I don't. How do you actually balance being a lawyer and a comedian? Which profession takes up the most of your time? Well, the law, actually, I get paid for. So it's a much more, let's say, a fruitful operation. So at night, but writing a joke, it will take me six hours to do one minute. So preparing for a trial is a lot easier, in my judgment, than preparing for a night at an Atlantic City casino. Because you can miss a word on a trial. You can kind of back up a little bit. When you're on the stage, it almost has to be perfect. Because if you lose that audience, you're not bringing them back. So I find it much more difficult than being in the courtroom. Listen, you can't really tell me very much about comedy. I was married since the Stone Age to a comedian by the name of Joey Adams, who was in the Friars, who was president of all the actors. So the one thing I know is his cockamamie, how to be funny. How did you get into stand-up comedy in the first place? 30 years ago, uh, my wife saw an article in New Yorker magazine that there was a contest at Stand Up New York for the funniest lawyer in New York. And from my birthday... She entered me and she said, you got to prepare your comedy. I went in, I went through three rounds and I came in second in New York, of course. But I went to New Jersey a year later in the 1980s and I won the funniest lawyer in New Jersey contest three years in a row. I actually trademarked funniest lawyer in New Jersey. And now I'm the Muhammad Ali of comedy in New Jersey. Okay, so tell me in my ears. Give me one of your cockamamie jokes now. Yeah, well, many times it is, it's is—it's uh, observational humor. So if I see something, that becomes the joke. So I start off by saying, uh, I'm John Bramlick, funniest boy in New Jersey. I have some bad news for you and I have some good news for you. The bad news is you paid money to see a lawyer tell jokes. The good news is I'm not getting paid either, so none of your money is coming to me. So I normally open with that, and you try to bring the audience in because they say, oh, he's not getting paid, so uh, we'll give him a good time. No, but that's funny. What you did was funny because you you established a humor within the audience. And then what I do next is I say, I'm also a New Jersey politician. I'm a New Jersey state senator, so you can trust everything I'm about to tell you. Yeah, that's the biggest joke of all. Listen to me, honey. I know New Jersey. Have you ever faced criticism for using humor in your political work? Oh, all the time. So what they do is when they run it in elections against me, they'll take something that I've done on the stage, they'll videotape it, and they'll say, uh, I use one joke, and the joke goes like this. Uh, I went to a town hall meeting, and a lady said to me, what are you going to do about high taxes, expensive housing, and congestion and crime? I said, uh, I'm moving. So I do that as a joke, 
but you know they use it against you. It's a joke. I'm not moving. I'm still here. <laughs> okay. All right. So you're a state senator and lawyer. Neither of those I trust at all, and they're more funny to me than your humor. But as a state senator and lawyer, which of those jobs is least reliable? Well, clearly senator, because <laughs> the voters can kick you out at any time. If you're talking about reliability in terms of your career, clearly being a lawyer. Uh, reliability, uh, clearly in politics, today you Today you could be a star, and tomorrow you can be gone. Well, with God's help, let's hope that happens to everyone in Washington. Which began first with you, lawyer, senator, comedian, husband, jerk, what? Well, jerk, clearly. I mean, you know, you had to start over as a jerk. Otherwise, you couldn't be the other stuff, right? So uh, <laughs> uh, in, I went to Cedar Brook School in Plainfield, New Jersey, and, you know, being funny or being a class clown, you know, that's not that's something you train for. You got to go to law school. You know, if you think about it, to be a lawyer, you got to be uh, you got to run for office. Jerk and class clown is actually no prerequisite. You can just go out and do that stuff. And that's what I did since I was in little uh, elementary school and junior high school. Where do you get more money as a lawyer? A senator or a comedian? I mean, you get no money as a senator. I'm sure you're not getting paid high as a comedian. Where, where do you get your income? You mean legally or illegally? I want to make sure. We're I talking legally because oh, illegally okay. we'll be on the air for an hour, yeah? <laughs> so uh, I'm actually a personal injury lawyer, so I'm one of those people you can imagine, like, uh, there's no comparison between those three professions in terms of how to make money. And I wouldn't be able to do the other two if I wasn't making money. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to support my family based on my funniness. Uh, I'm not sure I know what you said, but I don't care either. I like talking to you. What kind of law did you study? Where? What? What, what university? Yeah, I went to Syracuse University undergrad, and I went to Hofstra Law School for my law degree. And what kind of law do you specialize in? I am a trial lawyer, meaning I'm the person that nobody likes, right? The trial lawyers. You know, we've got that bad reputation sometimes, but I'm a personal injury lawyer. Specifically, I'm a certified civil trial lawyer. Which of these careers, honey, would you give up if you had to? Well, if money wasn't an object, right, at all, uh, or if I could get into the top comedy clubs in the world, I'd probably do comedy first, I'd stay in the state senate second, and I'd practice law third. That's probably my order. So nobody sort of thinks that you're sort of semi-nuts for being a comedian? I mean, nobody goes into your office with tragedy and upset nerves and wants to get something righted, and you're giving them two Jews showed up at a bar mitzvah. You don't think that that puts them off a little? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question because do you really want to hire the funniest lawyer in New Jersey? No. For your, serious, <laughs> for your no. serious case. You know, it's probably a good point, but think about this. If I can convince 500 people at the NJ Pack that I'm funny, I probably can convince six people that Cindy Adams is entitled to a lot of money. 
because really it's actually harder to do the comedy than stand before a jury. And interestingly enough, when you can stand before 500 people and do that, a jury trial is easy. What is that part about my getting a lot of money? Go back to that. I got nervous when you said that. Well, what does well, that you mean? Already made, you already made all the money. You're famous. You don't even need the money anymore. You think about that. I mean, you're, you're Cindy Adams, one of the most popular, well-known people in the world. So you don't need money. You're just having fun now. Is that supposed to be a joke? No, I, I, I've read your column. Uh, it's a long time. I've been reading it a long time, so I figured I must have paid you a lot of money over the years, and now you probably have four or five homes. They're all over the world. How's your private aircraft doing? you got a private plane too, right? Well, for that reason, I really could use a lawyer. But I'm not going to go to you because I probably know every damn joke you're going to tell because of Joey. Okay, tell me a joke about Biden and make it a lousy joke because that's what I think about him. Tell me a joke about Biden. Tell me a joke about the damn Democrats. Tell me a joke about the government. Okay, well, I'm going to steal this joke. There's a comedian named Vince August who's a former judge. And his joke that he gets up and says, they wake up President Biden and they say, Mr. President, Mr. President. He goes, President? President of what? He goes, am I president of a condominium association? What am I president of? He says, you're president of the United States. And he turns to the people and go, did somebody shoot Barack? <laughs> that, was, that was the joke that Vince, and I got to give it to Vince August, because he does, and he does Trump jokes as well, because he's bipartisan. That's not, it wasn't bad. It's not great, but it wasn't bad. Listen, what can I tell you? To me, a lawyer is a highly educated person who rescues your estate from your enemies, then keeps it for himself. Lawyers are high-class thieves themselves. And of course, this is a joke, so nobody sues me. But lawyers are getting a great deal of money, a lot of money, more than you're going to make from nightclubs. Well, it depends if the lawyer's worth it. If the lawyer is keeping you out of jail or he's a great lawyer, he may be worth it. It's all relative to what the case is about. Yeah, there's a lot of lawyers that are probably not worth paying and others who are worth double what they charge. It just depends on the person and the case, like everything else. Like there's certain people on the radio who are great, such as yourself, and there's other people on the radio nobody wants to listen to. Same way, just like lawyers. Are you funny at home with your wife? <laughs> so every time I get off the stage and Patricia and my wife's Patricia Brentano and she goes, she goes, uh, you forgot the joke about your daughter. You forgot the joke about your cousin. I said, how was that? She goes, ah, okay. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. And she goes, I say, you want to go? I say, you want to go to uh, the comedy club and watch me? She goes, no. I go, it's going to be great. She goes, no, no, I'd rather stay home and watch Gunsmoke. Well, you were adorable. And before I throw you the hell off the air, give me a joke about America, about government, about the lousy Democrats. Give me one farewell joke. Okay, well, I do one routine about how you know I'm from New Jersey, right? How do you know I'm from, how do you prove you're from New Jersey? And I have a few answers to that. First, go, I never go. Slow, I, ne I never slow down an easy pass. Uh, I never do the speed limit. Uh, anytime I go to motor vehicles, I never have the right documents. 
And finally, if you need something, I know a guy. I know a guy who knows a guy, but no names. Okay. My advice is not to give up law. Listen. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going on the radio. That's what I'm going to do on WABC. You and Joe Piscopo, that's what I'm doing. That's my profession. John, you were fun, and thank you very much for coming on the air. I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks a lot, honey. My honor. Thank you, Cindy. Bye-bye okay, now. Bye. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. It's Fashion Week. So I did a survey once on fashions in Russia. Let me tell you, it's a little different over there. There are beautiful women the world over. We also have Russian spies that are beautiful all over, but not the average Russian. I asked one, do you ever diet? No, was the reply. Yet, it seems that Russians find no crime in being stout. It seems that in the USSR, everybody's equal, and there's no weaker sex. One lady at a Georgian restaurant was swilling vodka, the national beverage. She was taking it down neat. It was not mixed with anything. It was liberally laced with black pepper and washed down with bread. So this woman said, we do not worry about getting fat. The first and important thing is to have plenty of bread and butter before you drink. Why do you need bread and butter before you drink? I said, she says, because the bread sponges up the alcohol while the butter acts as a coating. So there, we are careful here not to get drunk because the penalty for drunkenness is severe. Your name is placed last on the list for an apartment. Okay, this was at a fashion show. I was invited to this fashion show. It was at the stonewalled Sovietskaya Concert Hall. It was in a building without any things to go that look gorgeous. The shelves and prices, however, were exorbitant. They were swimming ladies in the Sochi Resort. They were swimming, however, although this was a fashion show, they were swimming in a bra and panties because they weren't swimsuits to purchase. When some were put on sale at Moscow's giant state-owned department store, the fashion industry showed one brocade evening gown plus matching coat with cuffs and hem of mink. No bathing suits. These matching coat with cuffs and hem of mink will be mass-produced 
told the directress to me at the fashion show. Since this is not precisely what one sees on the steps, I asked how many will be mass-produced after the fashion show is over. Said the directress, 12. Then there was the red-haired model at one counter. She said, for this autumn season, I own two suits, two coats, one with a matching skirt. When they wear out, I will replace them, not before. Okay. Fashion magazines there at fashion shows showed stockings and synthetic fabrics, which are mostly unattainable. She said, what I would like to have is not real silk. If I had a choice, what I would buy with the money I would save would be an eyebrow pencil of foreign manufacture and good quality, the kind which is good enough not to create the eye, irritate the eyelid. My own tourist guide wanted my cosmetics when I left. When I gave them to her, she apologized and said, if I gotten her into any difficulty, she would give them back. We agreed that if there were any difficulties, we would meet later that afternoon at three o'clock at a certain point on Kutuzovsky's prospect where we would make the transfer. This 007 gambit, what traded from me to her was a couple of lipsticks, a tweezer, and an eyebrow pencil. I waited for two hours. She never came back, and never did I see her again. So let me tell you about Fashion Week in Russia. The first fashion show ever presented in the USSR was a terrible-looking operation. There was one powerful-built six-footer whom his wife frankly labeled a very ambitious man. He came out with an outfit that was impossible. He shipped ahead to get Moscow's official suiting. He offered expenses by chartering a jet plane and loading it with 138 retailers. This is the guy who organized the fashion show. And he happily paid a nominal cost for the thrill of making the first fashion show history. At their closing ensemble, a gold evening coat had a mink hem. It was priced at 150 rubles, roughly $150, and the dress was $60. I asked one Russian model from the steps how much she earned. She said 100 rubles a month. We were told she said, although a, a Polish-born member of her group was unknown to anyone, she spoke Russian silently. 
She, her lips moved, but she didn't speak. She said she was 75, but from her wardrobe, she could have been older. None of their outfits were for sale. The directress of the Emporium said that 30 manufacturers were mass-producing ensembles. At the question-and-answer period afterwards, I inquired, how many such coats will be mass-produced in this country of hundreds of millions? And she answered, twelve. And how many of the simple suits will be mass-produced for the whole Soviet Union? She said, 200. Also, when you mass-produce these suits, which you showed with matching hats, do you also manufacture the hats that go with them? The answer, no. These things also were being shown, but not purchasable anywhere. In Gums, the state-owned department store, nothing was on the shelves. You couldn't buy shoes, synthetic fabrics, cosmetics, any fashionable apparel, blankets, Russian embroidery, stockings, or bathing suits. At many beaches, the ladies splashed about in bra and panties. Women acquaintances pleaded for your lipstick, eyebrow pencils, mascara, even your gloves. Russian sables weren't available either. You know why? They were all on 7th Avenue, where they were vacuumed up by U.S. capitalist imperialists. Russia, you can shove the country. You can shove their fashion industry. A walk down the runway was laden with oriental rugs, and the people wore black embroidered flare coats with three-quarter length sleeves. Underneath clung to them sleeveless, hip-hugging, chin-high turtlenecks, and that was the fashion in Fashion Week. Some whirled about to show a rear view of their dress. It was backless, clear to the waist, and I noticed beads of sweat had gathered on the brow of my communist seatmate who was watching me as I took a clear look at what was Fashion Week in Moscow. I am now talking about something I dislike even more than Russia. There is a creature by the name of Nancy Pelosi. It's really pronounced Pelosi, but according to me, it's Pelosi. She has just announced that she will be running again or walking quickly for another term. This is even though her husband has already said she is stepping down. He has been suffering as a result of what she has been doing politically, and he has said she is going to step down. Well, she hasn't said she is going to step down. She will not step down until she falls down 
or if possibly, if we're lucky, we can push her down. Maybe it is time for Nancy to leave Washington and head for Florida, the alligator country. And if she moves quickly, she could still be on time for the early bird special. I am a very nice lady. I am a kindly soul. I am loved by everyone. I am not here to comment on Nancy's age because we know that mine might be even larger than Nancy. But about Nancy's age, let me just say this. The last time she lit candles on her birthday cake, the fire department arrived quickly on the scene. Now I would like to say another word or two. As long as I'm talking about what's happening in the old days, things are not like they were, and I'm missing them. Like whatever happened to motion picture czars? Whatever happened to the proper ratings? Isn't anyone watching anything? Back to the days of yore, when Marlon Brando couldn't remember lines in the last tango of Paris, he scratched them on his shoe. Then he limped through one scene so he wouldn't erase his script. Elizabeth Taylor allegedly powdered the inside of her mouth so her throat would look prettier in close-ups. What are we looking at today? We're looking at people killing and stabbing in movies. Dennis Hopper thought credits for his Easy Rider looked better if shown upside down. I don't get that at all. In Holy Smoke, Kate Winslow's action was to pee on herself. Hooking a wire device onto her, the prop person flipped a switch and a bag of saline solution tinkled out. Now, I am about to say that I have had enough of talking. You, of course, have not had enough of listening to me. I understand that. But at the moment, WABC is about to throw me off the air. And so I have to say goodbye to you. And I look forward to speaking to you again next Sunday afternoon. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to me. Cindy Adams, signing off.